Good morning. Today's reading is Luke 15, 1 through 32, and that will be on page 821 in the Black Hardback Bibles. Again, Luke 15, 1 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Trust me, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? So I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. My name is Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here uh, at Free City Church. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, uh, we're really glad you're here. Um, You're with us as we uh, are kind of on the back half uh, of a series that we're walking through the Gospel of Luke. 
looking at scenes uh, that center around food. And so this scene doesn't exactly center around food, and this actually wasn't in the uh, original plan of the series. But right there in verses 1 and 2, you see the complaint that we've seen over and over of, you know, this man, he even eats with these sinners. And so the, the complaint that has existed on is who Jesus chooses to eat with. And so um, this idea of uh, across-the-table evangelism, this idea of uh, radical gospel hospitality is something that's actually really near and dear uh, to, to our church and to uh, me personally. Um, you know, nearly six years ago, uh, you know, before Ethan and I and our families, we arrived to start Free City Church, uh, I was a part of a, a church planting residency. And so to kind of, how do you think about that? Think about it like this, kind of like a church planting finishing school where uh, every other week for six months, um, I would uh, travel to Little Rock uh, for two to three days. Um, and I was there with eight other guys who were all planting in other places, all kind of similar stage of life, all trying to figure out, all ant- trying to ask and answer the same questions of what am I doing? And so, man, it was just really an incredible time when you get around people who are asking the same questions and, like, there's a vulnerability to actually say, man, I'm asking the same questions. I don't know. Like, there's something that happens among that people. And so we were all asking the same questions, all wrestling with the same kind of insecurities and fears and trying to kind of puff up our chest and act like we are called. I mean, we felt like we were called, but kind of like act like, man, I know that I know that I know. And then you're crying in a corner. I don't know, you know. And so we were all in this similar place trying to figure out what are we doing? We uh, had a, a, a week where we didn't go to Little Rock. We went to um, an exotic duck hunting ranch if that that's a thing apparently and it was incredible like it was incredible uh it was just beauty after beauty i mean you're surrounded just in this incredible country it was it was almost all the way down like south arkansas all almost to uh louisiana and it was just beautiful now that that retreat came to be known as the feelings retreat because it seemed like the goal of it was no one is leaving until you cry and so uh, I mean, the goal of it was really twofold. We were there to practice what is the vision that God has laid on our heart for our church, which, I mean, I didn't really know. That was awkward. And then the other thing was like, what are the insecurities that you're bringing in this that you're afraid to verbalize? And so, you know, anytime you add, apparently you add this beautiful exotic duck ranch uh, with you know, nine grown men crying in circles together, what you get is a feelings retreat. And that's what we had. And so one of the assignments there, we met, we'd already studied like what it means to talk about compelling vision. And uh, all of a sudden, one of the leaders, Bill, he starts ripping off butcher paper sheets and he starts passing them out. And you got a packet of markers and a butcher paper. And he said, I want you to go. You have like three hours to draw your vision. I remember taking my butcher paper and taking my pack of markers. And I felt like a defeated first grader. I remember walking to my room and sitting there, and I felt like a defeated first grader for a lot. One, I had big markers. They were the fat ones, you know, big watercolor, you know, markers. And the other is, this is the kind of thing my mom used to do to me all the time. 
my mom was an art teacher and she wanted me to be an artist because when I grow a beard, I look like Van Gogh. I'm not going to cut my ear off, I swear. And so, I mean, that's just what she wanted. And I remember waking up one morning in the summer and my mom woke me up and she asked me this question, what sort of activities do you want to do today? I couldn't even say activities very well. I remember saying, uh, I think I want to ride my bike. And she said this, I have an activity that includes your bike. And she made me sit out in the sun with a piece of butcher paper taped to the concrete. And I had to trace the shadow of my bike. I literally was like this disgruntled, sad first grader within reach of my bike. But all I could touch was its shadow. And so, man, I felt like that all over again. I'm sitting there like, man, I feel like I'm reaching for something. I don't even know what it is, and I can barely touch its shadow. And now in the same way, Bill Wellens has embodied my mom, the art teacher, giving me markers and said, go trace its shadow. And I don't know what to do. I mean, I thought, I don't know. I mean, we could draw a picture of, you know, Kansas and like put a big cross in there with radiant beams coming out, you know. And that didn't feel real compelling. I didn't even know how to title it. Like we hadn't even named it Free City yet. And so like, I'm like, this is not compelling. Some unnamed church in an undisclosed location with imaginary people and no money whatsoever. We're going to do something awesome because we got radiant beams coming out. I remember just feeling so defeated. And just saying, I had a cup of coffee in my hand, just sitting there and saying over and over, what do I want to see? What do I want to see? God, what do you want to see? What do we want to see? I finally got this idea in my head, and I I drew at the top of the page, I drew a big table. And up at the top, I, I drew God the Father. You knew it was God the Father because he had a big beard. And then I drew God the Son. You knew it was God the Son because he had a little beard. And then I drew God the Holy Spirit, and he knew it was God the Holy Spirit because he was kind of a mystical smoke thing. And so, I mean, and I put it around this table. And then just to clarify, so if people didn't know what, I put the symbol of the Trinity, you know, triangle with a circle around it, or the fancy triangle uh, with a circle around it so people could know. And then I worked in the radiant beams, and I moved radiant beams from that table to a bunch of other tables with a bunch of stick figures because I did not fulfill all my mom's dreams with my art ability, with a bunch of stick figures of people gathered around other tables. I remember getting done, and it didn't, it didn't look really good. But I remember thinking, that's what I want to see. I want to see God's people gathering around tables and ushering a lost world in around the tables that they might experience what the triune God included us in because the triune God didn't need to fill its table. The God of the universe wasn't lonely or sad. The God of the universe was full of joy, full of everything you could imagine, lacked nothing, and made this choice. Let's include others in. And that's salvation. You are included into the table of God. You know, we've been there a couple of times. Isaiah 25, the picture of the messianic banquet of God on the mountain of God, that all nations are represented, that death itself is on the menu and it is eaten and is taken away. That is the picture of what we are headed to. And I remember um, drawing that. And man, I just didn't realize that that would be just really instrumental 
Like when people ask, you know, how, how we got here, I mean, I just said, man, we just invited people to our house, and I was blown away. Like I'd meet someone, it's creepy, man. I'd meet someone at a coffee shop, I'm like, hey, you want to come to dinner at my house? And I'm like, that's weird. They shouldn't want to. And they'd be like, yeah, that sounds great. I'm like, man, you could get killed in a day like today. I could be an axe murderer, you know? I mean, and ultimately that's what happened. That's what we want to exhume. Like when we look at this, we want you to see your table or whatever you have as a means, an invitation that you would commune with God's people in a meaningful way, reenacting like the Lord's Supper, that we'd break bread together, that we would see the substance of our enjoyment, the substance of our life is given from God to us. It is given. And that you would usher in a lost world around to do the same thing. It's going to be awkward. They're going to ask questions and you're going to have to be honest. I don't know. It's okay to say that. Why would God blah, 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 blah? I don't know. Let's find out. And so ultimately, like, when we think about evangelism and life together, we don't have a plan B. Our plan is that God's people would bring lost people around their table um, to talk about their hope in Jesus. And so we're putting putting a lot on your table you know, when we get here, like, this is what we see in Luke. This is what we see, like, Jesus encountering a lost world around tables over meals with conversation and teaching. Like, Jesus celebrates their conversion over and over. The people that the religious would look at, hey, he shouldn't be at your table. Then there's a conversion, and he celebrates it. You know, over and over, this has been what it's been going on. You know, Luke 4, starting in verse 16, it says this, it says, And he came to Nazareth, and so this is the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. He had just left the temptation of the desert, of the wilderness, where he defeated Satan with all his temptations by the word of the Lord. And so he comes, and as his custom, he comes to the synagogue, and he's going to teach. He's taught before. So they, they know him. They hand him the scroll. He opens up the scroll to Isaiah, and it says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, hometown. <clears throat> and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And so this is after his baptism. This is after Satan's temptation in the desert. Jesus went to church. Like, this is actually a really good picture of the church. Like, after baptism, like, we're Christians, Christians need fellowship. Like there's no, there's no category out there for like someone who loves Jesus and is devoted to Jesus but doesn't have a church body. Like that's a really new kind of idea. Like you and a bag of chips and God. Like God's not going to eat those chips, okay? I mean you and a bag of chips and God. Like, like all the letters of the New Testament are written to churches that God's people need one another. They come together. And so after the, his baptism, after being tempted in the desert, he comes to be among God's people, to be under God's teaching, to be under the scriptures. Isn't that us? Throughout the week, I mean, you face temptation and accusation. You have some wins. You have a lot of losses. Sometimes you come in feeling not bad. Sometimes you come in feeling utterly worthless. Not even like you failed, like you participated in darkness once again. He comes to church. All week he used the, the scriptures. If you see of chapter 4, verse 4, verse 8, and verse 12, he quotes scriptures to defeat you know, temptation and accusation. It's us. 
And so he comes on the Sabbath day, and in verse 16, it says, And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. Listen to this. This is the ministry of God. This is salvation. This is what the kingdom of God has come for. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. That's gospel. The gospel. Good news to the poor. Not just like poor because they don't have economic means, but those who lash social currency. Those who have been marginalized. Some marginalized by bad luck some marginalized by disease, some marginalized because of their choices. And so it says Jesus was going to proclaim good news about the kingdom to those who society had pushed out. And then it goes on, it says, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. See, Jesus' ministry was healing the lepers, restoring the eyes of the blind, lifting up prostitutes, and bringing in despised tax collectors and sinners. And look how it's described. It's more like captives who need to be freed. It's more like sick people who need to be healed. It's more like the oppressed who need liberation. And then verse 19, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of Jubilee. Every seven, seven years, so roughly every 50 years, what was supposed to happen was if you had debts, those debts were forgiven. Every roughly 50 years, if you had been you know, pushed into servitude, into slavery because of debt, you were supposed to be freed. Like, think about the grace of God that he didn't want any one generation to, like, damn the family line. He didn't want any one generation to set that family so far behind they could never catch up. Every generation, there was a do-over. Think about the freedom of that. And so Jesus reads this, and just so you know, Israel never did it. Like, they would talk about the year of Jubilee, like, oh, this incredible thing. They never did it. And so then it goes on, verse 20. It says, and he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus describes his ministry, the ministry of God, as declaring the gospel, good news, that the kingdom of God is for all. Like, Jesus is the year of Jubilee. Jesus is the great reset. Like, you cannot blow your life in a way that damns you and your family beyond the mercy of God. There is a reset found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is for, and this is so loud in the gospels, the gospel is for those whom the religious leaders passed by as too far gone. And this is what Luke 15 is all about. Luke 15 is this incredible picture of our heart. Our hearts are prone to wonder. 
It's an incredible picture of God's heart. God's heart is constantly seeking the lost, and then he lavishly celebrates their repentance and their return. It's also an incredible picture of just the gospel. You know, when we look at Luke 15, the loudest thing is the value of a person to God. Even the value of a person who makes calculated decisions to hurt others and walk away. They have value. You know, when we, we look at this, we did a, a seven-week series on um, Luke 15. And so we, we have a lot of work to do, so buckle up. Um, we're going to mostly be doing an overview. This is one of my favorite chapters in, in the Bible. And I know I say that a lot, but I, I mean it this morning. So this is one of the favorite chapters of the Bible. Because it just gives this incredible picture of the gospel. You know, the book that we use is by Tim Keller, Prodigal God. Um, it, it actually was really influential in my life of just seeing the, the, the centeredness of the gospel, that the gospel has come to save the younger brother who kind of, you know, kind of looked at his family, looked at his responsibilities, said, screw that, I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to go party, do what I want. The gospel is for that kind of guy. But the gospel is also for the kind of guy that says, I'm going to stay home, I'm going to earn it. I'm going to earn God's love. I'm going to be good. The gospel is for however we choose to try to stiff arm the good news. The gospel can rescue us. And Luke 15 makes that so apparent. And so we'll look at this, and I'm just going to put it under three headings. And the headings aren't super descriptive, so you can write them down if it helps you out. We're going to look at the setting, number one. And ultimately, the, the setting is this. You have religious people and sinners with Jesus in between them. And it's a setting. And then we're going to look at what the problem is. And the problem has been the same problem every week where they're looking at Jesus and they say, why do you let them in? Why them? And then we're going to look at the message where Jesus says, they are valuable. And I will celebrate their return to the kingdom of God. And so let's just get started. Um, and so here we go. First, the setting. We have scribes and Pharisees, and we have tax collectors and sinners with Jesus in the middle. And I actually think the setting, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. I actually think uh, the setting of this famous parable is the most overlooked detail in the whole story. Like, look at verse 1. In verse 1 it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. <coughs> And now verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. And so, like, we see these two groups. Like, you have tax collectors and sinners, and what are they doing? They're drawing near. They want to be closer to Jesus. There's something about Jesus. There's something about his message that they can't believe, that they want to hear more. There's something about his persona. There's something about how he invites them in that they say, This is nothing like the teachers we know. He invites me in. And they drew near. But they're not the only ones there. Then you also see the scribes and Pharisees. Like you see the scribes and the Pharisees. And so this is like the religious elite. These are the people who really knew the scriptures. These are the people who maybe had degrees or the essence of degrees. They were faithful to the scriptures. They loved the scriptures. And they were around Jesus. But look what it says. They grumbled. Like, they grumbled. They, they pushed 
it away and they refuse to enter in. Like, it is unbelievable how differently they respond to the same message they're hearing. Like, they hear this message and one group is drawing in, like, this is unbelievable. And the other group is like, this is unbelievable. I can't believe this is going on. You know, we, we experienced this. My, um, my in-laws surprised us uh, with, uh, hey, we're going to Disney World. That was the message. And so, I mean, we knew about it before, so we were prepared, but they surprised our kids, like, hey, we're going to Disney World. And my kids, like, they were exuberant. Like, I'm going to get to meet Goofy. Kylo Ren will be my best friend. Like, he might be worth the dark side, you know? I mean, he's cool. I mean, and they were like, this is incredible. Kinsey heard the same thing. And she had this response of, man, I'm going to see my kids so happy. Like her response was also excited, but a little bit different. I'm going to see my kids so happy. I heard the same message. We are going to Disney World. And I heard, we are going to a place with 98% humidity mixed with 101 degrees Fahrenheit. 101 degrees Fahrenheit built upon a swamp to be a sea of asphalt. We are going there to stand in lines. We are going there to share a hotel room with my kids and my in-laws, not the romantic getaway I'm looking forward to. But it's sports themed. I mean, there's giant tennis rackets in front of the hotel. I mean, that's cool, right? Like we heard the same message and we kind of just had this weird response, different. Elation, draw in. I can't believe you're doing this for us. A very different feel push back. I can't believe you're doing this to us. (laughs) And in what we see, Jesus is declaring the good news of the kingdom of God, the great reversal, the great do-over, the year of jubilee personified, all debts are canceled, all captives are freed. The good news is preached to those who are so socially marginalized, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the sinners. And some either draw in, I can't believe this is real. And some push back, I can't believe this is real. And that setting's here this morning. See, the gospel has no middle standards. Like, the gospel, no one's like, just kind of like, ah, it's kind of cool if you understand what it's saying. See, what it's saying is that you are so bad, there is nothing you can do to fix yourself. You are so broken to the innermost part of you that the good things you want to do are mixed with selfishness and over time it will be exposed. You are so bad, nothing can fix you. But you are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you because only the death of God can fix you. It's polarizing. So here's the setting. Next, the the, the problem and we see it, look at verse 1 and 2 again. Like We see it, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so that's the complaint. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Like we could say, why do you let them in? Why do they get to be here? The, the complaint has been so consistent throughout. Like we see it back in Luke 7, in verse 34. Jesus declares, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunk, 
a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The question is, why do you spend time with them? Why do you let them in? And this complaint has been over and over as we've looked through Luke. Like, think back to Luke 5. Levi, the tax collector. That's where Jesus proclaimed that he was like a doctor coming to those who were sick, those who knew that they were sick. But the religious people looked at him and said, why do you eat with them? Or or look at Luke 7, when it was the prostitute who let her hair down, broke into the dinner party, and he anointed Jesus' feet with oil, washed them with her tears, and dried it with her hair. Like Jesus' message was those who know just how much they've been forgiven, they love much. But if you don't think you need to be forgiven, you won't love at all. And so he looked at her and he embraced her, and as he embraced her, the religious around him looked and said, man, why her? Do you know who she's in? Do you know what she's done? Or Luke 14, what, what Ethan preached last week, when Jesus healed the man with, with dropsy. Like the strong rebuke was, you guys act like you love the Sabbath. You just don't love people. He said, look, look, if your ox was, was in need, you would help your ox. If your son was in need, you would help your son. But you won't do anything to help these kind of people. And they looked and said, man, why would you help them? And he says, don't church up your love for the Sabbath. You just don't love people. And so the problem has been the same. Why do you let them in? Jesus, why them? And so the setting was bipolar. The problem was not them. And then we have the message. And if you've, if you've been keeping tabs, you only cover two verses. We have 30 verses to go, but we're going to go fast. But then we have the message, and the message is this, and the message is actually super simple. The message is they are valuable, and the kingdom of God celebrates their return. And so three stories, all with the exact same message. Something of value was lost. It was diligently looked for because it had value. And when it was found, not just the founder celebrated, the person who found it got all of their community and the whole community celebrated because the whole community agreed that what was lost was valuable. And so we have the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And so first, the lost sheep. Sheep have value, and when they are lost, you look for them and you celebrate their return. Look at verse 3. So he told them this parable. <clears throat> what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Like the whole point, you go and look for the sheep because sheep have value. It's easy to see. Even if it's just one of 100, it's easy to see its value. And so you go look, and it says, he looks until he finds it. Marriage has exposed so many things in my life. One thing that is exposed really loudly is I am a bad looker. Like, not bad, I mean, come on, I'm not bad looking. I'm a bad looker. Like, I will open up the refrigerator to look for something that Kenzie said, yeah, 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 it's in there, and I will just stare at it for like, minutes 
in minutes upon minutes, and I will change my perspective to try to look around things, and I'll even kind of move stuff around, and I will declare, it doesn't exist. It's not there. And Kenzie will walk in, and she'll just grab it and hand it to me. And I'm like, by the, by the miracle of God, that somehow manifested itself. <laughs> like, I'm a bad looker. You know, or she'll say, hey, I'll be, hey, where's your keys? She'll be like, oh, they're in my purse. I hate opening her purse. It's actually a backpack because like it is, like it's actually not bad. Like I've seen, ladies, I've seen some of your purses. Get help, okay? <laughs> Kizzy's actually isn't that bad, but like I reach in there and it's like it never ends. I'm like, what? Oh my, what is this? You know, and so I'm looking and I'm like, it's not there. And she'll come in like, oh, here it is. And I'm like, by the miracle of God, it manifests itself. And then she... I'll be up in the morning. I'll try to help the kids get ready. And I'll be like, hey, I can't find their jeans. Like, oh, it's in that second drawer. And I'll open up the drawer and I'll just give up. I mean, I'll be like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to put like Cruz's jeans on Anna and that doesn't work. I'm like, I thought they, it, you know, it looked about the right to me. Like, I'm a bad looker, but I'm persistent. I will ruin our whole evening until it is found. But here's the deal. My, my kids are both bad lookers and they're not persistent. It drives me crazy. Like in the morning, I'm like, hey, get your shoes on. I'm like, okay. I'm like, are you looking for your shoes? Yeah, dad, I'm looking for my shoes. Okay, I see you're on the couch. I know the shoes are not in the cracks of the couch. Have you looked? Yeah, and then they kind of flop around on the couch for a little while. Like, yeah, I've looked. I'm like, I am confident it's not there. Go look elsewhere. We see this incredible persistence that when something of value is lost, it says they look until he finds it. Let me look at verse 5. And when he has found it, the sheep, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. He rejoices. He doesn't give, like, he doesn't gripe the sheep out. He doesn't go into some lecture of like, hey, I told you about this, you little sheep. He doesn't do that. He doesn't look at the sheep and he doesn't say, hey, listen, why don't you tell me about where it went wrong? So we started off this morning like this. You had a bad little sheep attitude. It was bad. You know, you had a bad attitude. (laughs) And then it just kind of got worse and worse. So tell me where it went wrong. He doesn't do that. He picks the lost sheep up. He sees its value. And he rejoices. He rejoices, but he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He doesn't rejoice alone. He calls his community together, and they all celebrate because they all see the value of the sheep. And then just so we don't miss the allegory here, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner One of these tax collectors, one of these sinners whom you say, why them? There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus says that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. When one repentant sinner comes home, all of heaven rejoices because all of heaven sees its value. And so we have a lost sheep. Sheep have value when they're lost, so you seek them until you find them and you celebrate their return. But then it goes on, we have a lost coin. Look at verse 8. It's the exact same message. See, coins have value. That's kind of the point. Like money has ascribed value. It can be confusing in kindergarten because you have ten pennies and one quarter, but the quarter is worth more. It's confusing. 
But money has value. So when it's lost, you look for it and you celebrate finding it. You celebrate its return. Look at verse 8. It says, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? When you lose money, you look for it. This conversation actually just came up in my, my household um, not, not too long ago, where the question was, if you dropped money into the toilet, how much money does it have to be for you to reach in and get it? And, uh, and there were a lot of questions like, are we talking public toilet or are we talking home toilet? And so we clarified, public toilet. And then it was like, are we talking urinal or toilet? And I was like, urinal. I know ladies, that doesn't make sense, but urinal. And so it was like, how much, if you drop money into the urinal or your phone, okay, I know that's happened. How much value does it have to have for you to reach in and grab it? And so I present that question to Kinsey, and I realize there might not be a sum of money big enough for her to reach in and grab it. So she diverted the question back to me. Well, how much would it be for you? And I immediately felt shame of how cheaply I was bought. (laughs) I'm like, I mean, it's money. It has value, you know? Just pay that forward, you know? I mean, and so... But the whole point, like, the whole point of money is it has value. And the same thing, verse 9. And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. See, after the, the coin is found, she rejoices, not alone, but with her community, because the whole community sees the value of what was lost. And then verse 10, just so I tell you, Jesus doesn't want anyone to miss this. He doesn't want the allegory to be too deep that you just walk away. So just that I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the problem is, why do you eat with them? Why them? And so we have a lost sheep that has value, so you look and celebrate its return. You have a lost coin. It has value, so you look and you celebrate its return. And then we have a lost son. And just to say it the same way, lost sons, they have value. So when they're lost, you look for them and you celebrate their return. And we're going to walk through this very quickly. I mean, we spent seven weeks on this, but just to highlight some things. So look at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey to the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine across that country arose across that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Lost sheep. Lost coin. Lost son. But here in lies the difference. See, a coin doesn't do anything to be lost. You lose it. 
A, a sheep, you know, might make a choice, but a sheep doesn't have a calculated plan that hurts others for its own selfish ends. It just kind of moves from one blade of grass to the next, and then it's on some, you know, you know, some like scary cliff with wolves behind it. Like it didn't really make a decision of, man, I want to make your life hard. But a lost son is totally different. You see, the lost son looked at his dad and said, hey, I want half of the inheritance. Half is coming to me. I want it now. And it wouldn't have been liquid assets. It wouldn't have been money. They would have to sell the property. They would have to divide it off, get legal contracts to sell it. And then the son would have to liquidate it to sell it, to make it into money. And then he leaves and abandons the family. See, herein lies the difference. Like, you don't really blame a coin for being lost. You don't really blame a sheep. I mean, you might celebrate his return with lamb chops, but you don't really blame the sheep. But what about the son who looks at his family and says, I don't really want to fulfill the obligation of what a family is. I want what I want, and I want it now. I don't care how you feel about it. See, herein lies the difference. The younger son chose to walk away from the family for the far off country. He chose to neglect his family responsibilities. He chose to insult his father. He chose to engage in reckless living. That in verse 30, the older brother goes ahead and defines it for it was prostitutes. He chose. He chose. He chose. And again, coin doesn't choose to get lost. A sheep doesn't pre-plan its demise and stumble, but stumbles into it. But the son, he selfishly insulted and pre-planned his departure and he made the bed. And so the older brother and the, tack, and the Pharisees and scribes said he made that bed, let him lie in it. And Jesus sees it altogether different. You know, just to kind of bring it closer to home, like, I mean, this idea of like property, I mean, you guys, probably, most of you don't own property. I mean, so it kind of feels dif- distant. But what if we brought it into like this? What about your brother or sister who ran off to follow their dreams, leaving your aging parents for you to care for them? Or, or what about a spouse who, who wouldn't walk away from a career and come home to be a mom or a dad? Or, or what about a husband or a wife who chose to love another? Or what about the, the drug addict? who's now on the street, like, do you see their value even though they chose? See, there's, there's more than just a little bit of a Pharisee in all of us that wants to cry foul and says, yeah, but it's different because they chose and I chose better, so it's different. And so we do, we see a lost son who chose. Look at verse 17. But, but, this is probably one of the most beautiful New Testament words, but, like we see this spiraling out of control in a tailspin, everything is going to pot, but, and so we see a moment of clarity, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Like, you see the plan. This is the, I'll go back 
and I'll give my I'm sorry speech. This is I'll go back and I won't go back as a son because I know I don't deserve to go back as a son, but I'll go back and maybe I can come back as a servant. And so the plan is set. I will go back and I will work my way back into the house or to live on the peripheral of the house, but I will be provided for. I can't go back as a son. I gave that right up, but I will go back as a servant. Look at verse 20, verse B. 20, not verse B, 20, second part of verse 20. It's 20B in my notes. 20. We see but again. But, but, why he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Like, do you see the heart of God for this son who chose to walk away? He had compassion. He ran. He embraced. He kissed. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He gets halfway. This is halfway through the sorry speech. This doesn't even get to the the proposal. Verse 22. But, there it is again. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let's eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they begin to celebrate. See, lost coins have value. So you seek them until you find them. And then you celebrate its return. The message is lost sheep have value, so you seek them until you find them, and then you celebrate its return. Lost sons, even those who maliciously and selfishly choose their lostness, they have value, so you seek them until you find them, and then you celebrate their return. But not everybody is celebrating. Not everybody in the story is celebrating. Not everybody in the hearing of the story is celebrating. Like, look look in the story. You know, the the older brother couldn't celebrate the return of his younger brother because he looked at him and said, you don't deserve it. So look look at verse, verse 25. It says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came, he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. Like when you can hear dancing, that is some dancing. He heard music and dancing. Verse 26, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things mean. Like, what's going on? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Do you see the older brother's complaint? You're letting him in? He gets to come back? He who chose to walk away, who dishonored you, he who took your property and spent it on prostitutes, he gets to come back. Why him? Do you see the setting? On one side, we have tax collectors and we have sinners. On the other side, we have scribes and Pharisees. And like, do you see them? Do you see their choices? 
We're not talking about the, the lame and the blind who, however that happened, you know, it happened. We're talking about people who chose. And now you're going to let them in? Why them? Last week when Ethan uh, preached Luke 14, you know, Jesus shares a story where he's like, you know, when you come into a wedding banquet and you, um, and this was just a really loud point that he made, it's really good. You come in the wedding banquet and you want the seat of honor. Because if you're coming in the wedding banquet and you want the seat of honor, it means you look around and you say, man, I've earned it. I shouldn't sit down here. I shouldn't sit with the kids at the kids' table. Like, I'm important. I've earned it. I should sit up here, close to the action of what's going on. I should probably be the keynote speaker. I should be up here. And then when you move down, you feel ripped off. I mean, think about how you're going to talk about that wedding. Man, they put me with the kids at the kid table. I was drawing unicorns. I didn't deserve that. What if you came into that banquet and this was your response? I can't believe they let me in. I can't believe I'm in. Heck, I'll sit with the kids. You mean I can get seconds? How do the drink tickets work? I I can't believe I'm here. How do you think they're going to talk about that banquet? I was blown away. They let me in. I got to sit. I got to know their kids. It was unbelievable. See, one sounds like good news. One sounds like I received grace and mercy. One sounds embittered. I can't believe they associated me with those people. And this is what, this is what it's all saying. Like this is the attitude of a Christian. I can't believe I'm here. If I could be here, anybody can be here. Like this is what Levi, the tax collector, said in Luke 5. Jesus, I can't believe you're in my house. I'll, I'll pay back. I'm, I'm walking away. I'm with you. Or, or this is what the uninvited prostitute said in Jesus' arms. I can't believe you're not pushing me away. Look at all my choices. Look how I got here. I can't believe that you're embracing me. Or, or look At this, in Luke 15, the tax collectors and the sinners, they're drawn in. I can't believe you're making time for me. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're enraged. I can't believe you're making time for them. It's easy to see value of a sheep. It's easy to see value of a coin. Jesus says people who chose to walk away people who chose to hurt, people of little collateral in social settings. Jesus is saying really loud, they have value and I will seek them until I find them. And all of God's people who are God's people will celebrate their return with dancing you can hear. But not everyone celebrates. And this brings us to like the crux of the whole moment. In verse 31, the father answers, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that, mine, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. It is fitting. It is right. If you can't see the rightness of it, can you trust the heart of of God the Father when he said it's right, that it's right. See, the disposition of the gospel for lost sons 
lost sons who wandered off to the far country on their own volition. Come home. And we'll celebrate. The gospel is a message that says people have value regardless of where they find themselves. That God sees your value and he sees what he can do and he calls you a son. And it doesn't matter how deeply you are stained by the pig's slop. The blood of Jesus washes it all off the same. See, in the heavenly courts, even the angels who before God will celebrate the return of every repentant sinner. But he's warning us also. Some of us will be so offended. The scandal of this story is that it's told before tax collectors and sinners, scribes and Pharisees. The scandal is that the older brother is left on the porch with a choice. Will I come in and enter? Everyone hearing that story would have related that party to like an Isaiah 25, the party that happens when the Messiah has subdued everything and the kingdom of God is here and upon the menu is death itself because it doesn't plague us anymore. Every, we've alluded to it like three times. They would have alluded like, how is he not going to go in? And it's saying this, Jesus can offend you in such a way that you can't get beyond yourself and you won't enter in. You can And so Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, this is what he said in Matthew 21, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. See, communion is a time that we practice coming in. Over and over, every week, we practice coming in. We practice coming to a table that is set before us. We practice where everything is prepared. We practice that we come just as we are. We don't come in pretense of I got to go fix my life and then I'll come back. As Christians, we just come. We come in and we come to a table that's prepared. And what's before the table is a picture of what bought us entrance to the table. And we're saying to one another, I can't believe I get in. I can't believe I get in. It was paid for by the broken body of Jesus. It was paid for by the blood of Jesus. It was paid for me that I can come in. The way we take communion is we come forward and we come as we want. We pull a piece of bread away from the loaf and then we dip it either into wine or grape juice. The wine is in the stoneware, the grape juice is in the glassware. We also have gluten-free options in the middle of the table. But we choose to come in and we are ecstatic that we can come in. And all of heaven celebrates. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, um, gosh, there's more than a little Pharisee in my heart, more than a little Pharisee in our hearts. And Lord, we come with even that. We come with a judgmental heart that says, but I'm better than them. At least I didn't do that. But we also come in our best moments with awe and wonder of I can't believe I'm in. And so if you're a Christian, we, we invite you to take communion with us. If you're unsure about Jesus, and we ask you to respect this and to look up at the screen. We'll have verses and prayers for you there just that you might consider who Jesus is. That you might look at the text and you might consider what the cross means. That you might consider what the heart of God is like. And if you are this morning and you're like, man, I've been 
thinking about this and wondering, and man, I want that. And this is the first time in your life that you're saying, man, I see who Jesus is and I'm crossing over that line of faith. And now I see Jesus as Lord. And we invite you to come take your first communion. And all of heaven will celebrate. Father, we need you and we love you. I pray that you would change our heart. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.